Hi, I'm Kosambi and a super hearty welcome to Shelf, the building blocks of commerce by Mason. Here we talk about the most exciting trends and technologies that are reshaping the world of e-commerce from apps to headless to composable to low code to no code. Well, the list is endless. Join in. I'm so excited for today's show and today's episode because I've got someone that I've been wanting to speak for a while. We've got Matt Higgins today, CEO and co-founder at RSE Ventures. I'm sure a bunch of you have heard about Burn the Boats. Matt is the best-selling author of that book. And he, by the way, was on Shark Tank, a guest at Shark Tank. There's so many different hats, executive fellow at Harvard Business School. So ton of ton of learning today. We are very excited from founder, operator, investor, educator many different hats and a lot of inspiration. So welcome, welcome, Matt. I'm super excited to host you today. Before we dive into any questions, I think just hearing from you, your amazing journey that led you where you are today would just, you know, that would be a great point to get started. Okay, well, thanks for having me. So excited to talk to, especially people in this audience, because uh, I spent a lot of time on DTC and yeah. a lot of time around CPG. So excited to get into it. But uh, you're, me- you're meeting me at a moment in time when I am wrapping up all those many hats, those disparate hats and packaging them under something I'm very passionate about. And I'll get into that in a second. So you're you're intersecting with me at a moment in my journey that's unlike many of the years that came before. But long story short, I grew up extreme poverty for those who haven't read the book yet, in a place called Queens, New York. And my prism through which I grew up was, on the one hand, the power of work to try to get you out of poverty and achieve a degree of freedom. So I would do everything humanly possible as a kid, taking care of my disabled mother. I would sell flowers on street corners, knock on windows on holidays, starting at the age of 9, 10, 11, and then would work at McDonald's, scraping gum under the tables in the party room as the maintenance you know, kid. So just constantly hustling, but never ever able to outrun the dysfunction and uh, suffering that goes along with poverty often. And at the same time, education. My mother was uh, never even had a high school degree, and I watched her get a GED to try to really realize her full potential. And my mother was brilliant, but had a ton of health issues that she uh, she also could not outrun. And so that was the framework of my my growing up. And then a third most important piece, though, is, is powerlessness. Anyone out there listening who grew up or is in a state of suffering realizes you go through a disillusionment phase where you fantasize about somebody caring or intervening, and then the cavalry never comes, and you have a fundamental choice. Do you adopt a framework as a victim? Does that become your identity? Or do you take matters into your own hands? And I have always believed since an early age that we have a fundamental choice. You know, do we believe that bad things happen to us in life or we happen to things? And I made a break in my thinking very young where from now on, I happen to things. And I began to architect my way out of that situation And I made a very radical decision, which became the premise of this book, which was to drop out of high school at a young age, get a a GED, and enroll in college, which was a loophole. And by enrolling in college at age 16, I was able to change the trajectory of my entire life. I was able to pull forward many professional accomplishments, became a reporter when I was, you know, 7, 18 years old, 19 years old, won a bunch of journalism awards. And I went from 16-year-old high school dropout to at 26 press secretary to the mayor of New York using this formula of burn the boats, this idea of fully committing and sabotaging our my own retreat. So I had no choice. By dropping out of high school, I was effectively taking on the stigma forever of being a high school dropout, but I saw another path. And so we can get into it deeply, but if you look at my entire career, 
to the extent to which, and thank you, by the way, for your opening, but to the extent to which somebody's quote unquote impressed or how did he get to the top of these different industries? I wanted to take the authority that comes from the accomplishments to go back in time and say, let me show you the path. Because if you are languishing right now in your life, or you feel like the die is cast because of where you came from, or you're carrying a stigma of shame, there is another way, right? And the other way is to fully commit what you suspect about yourself, about what you're capable of. But most of us, when we're carrying baggage, we don't know how to do it. So it's a long way of saying you you find me in a moment in time when I wrote this book to speak to those who are listening right now who are not perfectly self-possessed, who are dealing with imposter syndrome and anxiety, and show you how to do it. Yeah, like one part of this whole story for me is about, you know, taking control of your own, you know, life and your own decisions. And as you said, very, very aptly, not waiting for the cavalry to come. (laughs) There's nothing that's coming. It's you. And uh, interestingly, over, as I mentioned to you, Matt, uh, you know, over these last three years, specifically when when I started my own startup, speaking to a lot of, lot of different founders across the globe, a lot of them forced almost into kind of like, hey, how do I figure out a brand or a business, something to, you know, keep food on the table to sort of like move into this next phase of whatever life is thrown at me, right? And uh, I see a sudden similar sort of a sense of fear now with the economy and with AI and the potential of what's going to happen to all our jobs. And I see a lot of that in uh, tons of different brands and founders who are coming up and saying that we really don't know. It's it's a crazy world out there. We don't know what's our relevance, how, what advice and what what's the pathway for them. It is absolutely crazy. It's very paralyzing. I mean, I don't, I'm 48 years old. I don't remember in my career a moment when a recession has been so greatly anticipated, but never quite arrives. And that has created a paralysis with investors, with founders. It's hard to skate to where the puck is going when you have no idea of what what is going to happen. But so this is my advice. There is going to be no soft landing. There'll be a violent landing. And the math doesn't add up. And we can go deep into that, but probably not worth the time. But when you look in the $17 trillion of household debt, trillion dollars of credit card debt, ticking away at 24%, auto delinquencies and credit card are now north of 7%. The canaries are in the mind. So if I, my advice, number one, is just, just accept that as fact. Because what happens is when you see an economist at a bank change their opinion and believe everything's going to be fine, the commissioned class, as I call them, the people who make their living on commissions, brokers, bankers, all that, like they have a vested interest in grabbing on to hopium. Like, oh, maybe it'll all be okay somehow. So it'd be easier to anchor yourself, it's not going to be okay. And when you do that, it's like, okay, we are screwed. So I can I can work with that. <laughs> so that's number one. Number two, I just put out, I posted this the other day. I feel so passionately about it. If you're a founder and your business fails before you made a radical 180 degree pivot, that failure is 100% your fault. That means that you did not take advantage of what the universe over always does, which is because it's benevolent. They show before you, like, this is how you're going to die right? This is how your business will fail. It gives you an opportunity to see that movie and change the ending, right? Always mm-hmm. happens. When I look back, the worst decisions I've ever made in my life, all my failures, I'm like, oh, there was that moment, right? It's it rising of like Scrooge and the Ghostbusters Christmas past future, right? Like, oh, you've now shown me what my life is going to be like. So this is my advice to any founder out there. You know when things aren't working. You know when you're doomed. But when you, if you don't make a change, it's for a few reasons. One, it's because you're afraid to look within. You're under-indexing on self-awareness. Two, you over-index on hope, or you've abdicated your responsibility to make that radical change. Like you are at the center of this journey. As the Italians say, the fish rots from the head. So my advice is like, don't be afraid. Take comfort in recognizing and facing both within and without why things aren't working. 
and make a radical change. I am 100% convinced that every, just like every action has an equal and opposite reaction, Newton's law, right? That every crisis has an equal and opposite opportunity. But one, you have to believe it's true. Okay, in that crisis lies my opportunity. But if you don't believe it's true, you don't look for it. The universe doesn't give you the opportunity. You have to go find it. That's number number two. Then when you identify it, you press it. And so I tried through the course of my book, Burn the Boats, to illustrate this idea. Well, what does that really mean, Matt? It's more of a philosophy than I can give you the, the absolute answer. So let's go specifically to DTC founders at the end of the day, people who are anyone out there who's uh, you know in that space, right? The valuations are not coming back based upon a multiple of top line until the next frothy period, because it always returns, right? So you're not going to get value based upon growth. You're going to get value based upon sustainability. And usually the flaw in the model is CAC, right? You can't make the numbers work. And CAC is only going to get harder and more expensive because the consumer is going to pull back. So you need to figure out how do I create organic content that can subsidize my CAC? How do I attack the deficiency in my model? Because what I'm going to be valued on for the next 18 to 24 months is sustainability and not a multiple of top line, not necessarily profitability, but a viable path to it. So it's a long way of saying, number one, you got to face it. Number two, accept the fact that you are in charge and the cavalry is not going. And three, if you die, your business fails without you making radical change, 100% your fault. Wow. And it's a lot of responsibility when you come to think about it, right? It and, is. Um, oh, that's good. I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather, I always say, I'd always say, I'd rather be in charge. People always say, Matt, you're so harsh on yourself when you say you're always the one to blame. I said, isn't that a better life, though? If I'm the one to blame, that means I have within me the power to fix it, right? If I'm constantly being buffeted by these forces and I can't do anything about it, well, then I'm just like a cork floating in the in the water to extend the water metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it yeah. is a lot of responsibility. So true. In fact, when you before you said the cork floating in the water, what was coming to my mind was a leaf or a feather just like blowing about. You're teaching a co-teach uh, moving beyond D2C, direct to consumer at Harvard Business School. Tell us a little bit more about that. What's, what, what's yeah, so, moving beyond B2C? Yeah, so um, so I teach this course at, at Harvard Business School. So we'll co-teach it called Moving Beyond Direct-to-Consumer. It's a course I created with my partner, Len Schlesinger. And now I'm uh, we also teach it with uh, Ayelet uh, Israeli. And the premise of the course is the fact that, you know, direct-to-consumer is not a business model. It is now, well, originally it was a launch vertical that would enable you to have a direct conversation with a customer about these particular trends. One, you're being wrong somehow. By the way things are done, there's a better way. Or take a conversation that we're not having and start it, like erectile dysfunction with hymns. And so there are certain patterns that enable these upstart brands to wedge themselves into a monopolistic industry and show there's a new way to do it, right? So, but in the reality is it's not its own business model. And now, it, of course, it's part of an overall omni-channel strategy. So the purpose of the course is to show what does the journey look like when you launch as DTC, but eventually have to become omni-channel, as most do, and what are the choices you need to make along that journey, and what are the things that go wrong? So I love this class. I have a, probably over 100 companies in my DTC portfolio, and so the purpose of the class is showing the entire omni-channel journey from every from every angle, and every year we have a new theme. So last year's theme was about how to create subsidized CAC using content, right? Like, what is the way? How do you bring that number down? And I brought Kim Kardashian, Scarlett Johansson, and Bobby Brown to Harvard. I'm partners with, with uh, Scarlett on something. But the reason why those three were important is they demonstrated how you could use the power of storytelling from different ages, different generations. Bobby's in her 60s. Scarlett's a movie star. And all of them have in common 
a model that works, right? Because they're yeah. they're embracing storytelling. And why that's so important is I find some founders, maybe some people who are listening here, they're uncomfortable with storytelling or they're yeah. uncomfortable putting themselves out there. And they hope that they can intellectualize their way to making their business. And I actually think that almost never works. And you're mm-hmm. wasting an opportunity to take advantage of bring CAC down by embracing storytelling. So anyway, that's a long way of talking about my course. We do 20 20 classes over four days. It's crazy intense. It's like the Lollapalooza of DTC. Every January, usually takes us about six months to put it together. So uh, this year's, so before we go in deeper, this year's class is devoted to the path to profitability. Got it. Interesting thing, you mentioned CAC a few times, right? And honestly speaking, whenever you speak to old, new, you know, growing founders, in retail across D2C omnichannel, right? CAC is like something and you see the fear in, in people's eyes, right? And specifically now, like you, as you actually said, I read uh, a few days back, like minimum nine to 10 different touch points before uh, someone like me even ends up buying with a brand. So it's 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 crazy. It's, it's ProS is just, you know, in a very it's different crazy. state. It's, it's crazy. So, and by the way, it's, yeah. it's so demoralizing and dispiriting. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. going through it with my book, which by the way, there's no amount of CAC that ever could be justified because the LTV of a book buyer is nothing. It's the single yeah. book. You know, I'm, yeah. on a mi- I'm on a mission. So I know that it's a money losing enterprise, but it has yeah. been fun and humbling for me to be like, wow, I have to talk to you nine times before you'll actually execute. But that's the reality. <laughs> So, so how, how do people grapple around it, right? Like content becomes, as you rightly said, a lot of us are afraid about, specifically founders. I think we're very type A sort of personalities, more about, you know, figuring out a vision, sort of like operating towards it, storytelling, well, whatever, give me numbers, right? And it, it content becomes a very subjective, you know, something out there, very hard to really frameworkize. What do people mean when they say, be authentic in your content creation, scale your content creation, ensure that you speak to your audience. I mean, these are great things to talk about, but in action, what does it really mean? Well, it's a great question because people yearn for to like, well, reduce it to the math. I'm like, well, that's the whole point, but it's irreducible. But I, but I think to turn it into a more of a formula, right? Rather than focus on content, it's focused. I, I think we need new nomenclature around community, you know, cost of community, right? Because it's pretty obvious. If you have a group of people that identify as part of a community around a movement, around the central premise or idea of your brand, why are you doing it? Let's use Lola, for example, right? Lola, for those who don't know, is a DTC, is a DTC feminine care product that was born by two female founders who felt like if only customers understood what they were putting inside their body, they would reject it. And then there's a chance to create a new brand that is enlightened and that is for women, designed by women, that is conscious of what you're putting in your body. And they build that brand right now. So let's talk about that for it. If they simply tried to use, you know, direct customer acquisition and ads to bring people in, right? Think about how many, how much repetition, how expensive it was for that idea to sift through because the person only has a nanosecond to read the ad. Like, oh, all right, something bad's being in my body. I don't have time to really find. I don't want to think about it, right? Yeah. But now they focus on community first and before conversion. Now you've aggregated everybody who's like-minded, who has a predisposition to reject this general idea. They probably are female, first of all, right? There's more efficiency in talking to that dynamic. But they're coming to you because they have both not just purchase intent, but they have passion about your underlying premise, 
right? So mm -hmm. if, you, if you look at it that way, storytelling is just a proxy for creating a community of like-minded individuals for whom conversion will not take nine touch points. It'll yeah. take much less touch points. And for whom we'll have a stickier LTV who will be more evangelical and will help you with word of mouth. So it's so obvious when you state it like that. Storytelling is just a proxy for aggregating a community of like-minded individuals for whom conversion will be easier and word of mouth referrals more likely, right? And so when you bring Kim Kardashian, you think, oh, Skims is a monster because there are a bunch of people coming together because they love her. Right, their community, or and, and also the underlying principles of her brand. And so for Scarlett, same thing. They're coming to her because they think she's amazing and they believe they understand her journey journey around bad skin, right? So yeah. anyway, I love your question because that is the pushback with founders who are more maybe cerebral or mathematical mm -hmm. oriented. Like, yeah. that's terrific, Matt. How do I achieve community? I'm like, well, you start by giving a shit. You know what I mean? Like you start by caring and people will feel your energy that you care. The burn the bow, it's like, I bleed in that book and I bleed on interviews and share things that I look back. I'm like, oh, I'm so cringy. Why did I say that publicly? But then people will feel like, wow, he really has lost his mind and really cares about this. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, like, and that aids in conversion. So I would say to anyone out there who's a founder, like if you have decided that you're uncomfortable in front of a camera or it's inappropriate to be too boisterous, like you're probably going to fail. And you're, mm -hmm. you're certainly going to be much less successful. You need to embrace storytelling and you need to see that word not as a negative, cynical, like I hate the word networking, right? Like people use storytelling that way. Storytelling is a proxy for creating a community of like-minded individuals who believe in what you're doing and why you're doing it and will ultimately convert to your product much easier. Yeah. And I guess you saw a lot of amazing storytellers on, on Shark Tank for sure. I mean, it's so riveting. If you just put on one, you can't stop. You, you just got to go continue, continue and watch all the amazing founders with their amazing stories. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. I mean, I, I love Shark Tank and uh, as a, I would always watch the show with my son. It's how we would bond. I've done a lot in sports, but could, he could care less about that. So Shark Tank and, you know, making my way up in life. I just would love the journey of, of transcending and imagine what it would take for those people to get on that show, just simple math, roughly 40,000 people a year will um, yeah. audition to be on Shark Tank throughout the country. And throughout the season, 150 will make it on the show. Only half of them will get a deal. So imagine the winnowing that has to happen for that person to end up on the stage, right? This, and with a business, by the way, that normally would never attract a VC, right? Like a mm -hmm. lot of these things, a squatty potty, you know what I mean? Like these are not. I know, so I know. yeah, being on the show is incredible. Being on the show was, uh, was an amazing experience for me that that uh, now makes me part of the family forever. A lot of, uh, you know, brands are rather founders when you uh, see on Shark Tank and you see like the, uh, you know, the vision and then you kind of hear their story. But then you see that it's probably not a VC investable business, like, you know, like it's not large enough, etc. I think a lot, a lot of time in my mind, when you when you're thinking about you know, going really true to yourself and that building a community around your true values, you might struggle with balancing out being a VC investable business versus what truly calls to you. How do you balance that? Such a great question. I talk about this at Harvard all the time, It's usually in the beginning of the course and saying, don't be seduced by this gravitational pull that everything must be bigger, 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 or that, you know, the ultimate goal is to get an investor and evaluation of silly numbers. A lot of times I feel people leapfrog over what would it be like to create your own business that fed your family and gave you a chance at having a, a degree of freedom down the road, take nice trips, not worry about the bill at dinner. Like we tend to leapfrog that 
that objective, which is breathtaking. Like, wow, I've created a business and it throws off a few hundred grand a year and I can I can build a family on it, right? And we yeah. instead are like, are seduced by this folklore around building a big business. So a long way of saying like, I don't, not everything has to be big is meant to be big and needs to be big to fulfill your needs unless your needs are ego driven. So that's number one, right? And then number two is ask yourself, honestly, let's say your objective is to create a really big business. Is that this business might be compelling to you because where you are at a moment in time, but it's not compelling to an investor because they can't get that, get that kind of return. So I think by not, if you're not honest in evaluating your business, and a lot of times why people are dishonest is because their objective is to get that big headline number. Yeah. Well, then if your objective really is, then you got to ask yourself, is this the thing? And most businesses, while they may be great for you and they'll feed your family, they're not investable because they can't get yeah. that venture-like return. Yeah. And you just have to kind of, burn the boat of expectation that you have yeah right and also but but this is such an important conversation because like i don't know i've been uh, the journey that i go through every day i have all these different companies in my portfolio every day is pretty bad <laughs> because i'm only focusing on the things that aren't working and when you have a lot of businesses or you have a scaled business things are always never working right so if you have a life where you have a business that you've created with your own hands and it's taking care of your wife and your children, and you're going to put money in your 529 plan. They're going to go to the college that you never dreamed you could. Like That's winning. And so just be careful not to create the expectations around your life that put you in the hamster wheel and that you can't get out of. I don't know, where you, you and I are saying the same thing. It's like, there is something beautiful about creating a business that only that'll never do more than a million dollars a year, but actually it's enough to create a great living for you and your family. Yeah, so true. Uh, and I would love to continue more and more for the next one, two hours, but I know we've got a short time, Matt, and I will hope to meet you again some other time. But before we uh, you know, close for the day, uh, of course, the standard parting bit of advice, but also like any advice on uh, you know, early stage founders, late stage founders, how do you combat like burnout and you know, get in, feel inspired even throughout your career to write amazing books? <laughs> I mean, it's creativity. So just a bit of advice on that. Yeah. Well, let me just say a few things, right, that are mm -hmm. important to me about the yeah. journey, that it is painful and it's painful because you want it so much. So don't inadvertently try to extinguish that, which is the premise of my book, extinguish that by conjuring your backup plan when you don't need to, right? So a big part of the premise of the book is that we have already hardwired into our factory settings our fundamental backup plan in any situation. So anyone out there who is, they got a degree in accounting, but they've decided to now create a, you know, an amazing, you know, product, Asian infused chips, snacks, you know, and bring it to market. You know, this is actually a real fact pattern, you know, because um, I do, yeah. I do, I've done some investing in the Asian food yeah. space, right? Like that, understand that you already have your backup plan wired into your brain. You know, the, the soul crushing job you would take if you failed. So don't spend energy worrying about reputation management or downside protection because trust your ability to just survive. And that's what you do. So put your backup plans in a rear view mirror. That's number one. Number two, like everyone is faking it. Everyone around you feels like a fraud. Now people hit a certain place in life and they want to start concealing it because they're embarrassed that they still struggle with imposter syndrome. When I went in Shark Tank, I was, you know, like shaking like a rabbit because I felt like a total fraud. So just understand that if you are a founder, it's audacious to declare to the world, I'm going to bring this product, right? That's an that's audacious. And your mind is going to say, like, who are you kidding? Especially if you have people who are not supportive in your foxhole, you might actually have people say that out loud. Just understand everyone around you is having that same feeling. They just might be lying about it. And two, that's part of the process. 
imposter syndrome is part of the journey because it's your mind saying, I'm uncomfortable because I have no neural networks. I've never been here before. There's a reason why our little babies love Goodnight Moon. We're all like a bunch of little babies loving Goodnight Moon. We like repetition. So if you're feeling imposter syndrome, that's a good thing. Understand that's a feedback loop trying to go ahead and tell you like, okay, you know, we haven't been here together. This is painful. And then in terms of being ultimately a founder, the number one most important predictor, in my opinion, is self-awareness. Because people who over-index for self-awareness spot threats sooner. They audit themselves to see what's going right and wrong. And they have a blend of confidence and humility. The confidence to look objectively at what they're doing and the humility to acknowledge that I don't always get things right. Why is that so important? I could predict with a degree of certainty the likelihood that a founder is going to be successful by the amount of time it takes them to implement an objectively necessary course correction and the amount of time they actually takes for them to do it. So in other words, all right, we're screwed. <laughs> we don't have product market fit. It's time that we change, change it up, right? Or our cap table is a disaster or whatever. The amount of time it takes that when it becomes objectively inevitable that they need to make the course correction to when they actually do it. So if you're somebody out there listening and you under-index for self-awareness, you have to start with saying, why? The answers are usually psychological. The reasons why people under-index for self-awareness are usually because there's something they don't want to see. There's something they don't want to face. And I'm telling you more than any TED Talk, my book, this podcast, more than any of those things, the greatest arbitrage that's entirely within your control and the greatest arbitrage in life and business is self-awareness. So try to identify why am I, what am I so afraid of? What am I afraid that I'm going to find if I look within and figure out, you know, the thing I don't want to look at? Because that thing can unlock so much potential. And just to make it, bring it back to my own journey, when I realized how much I was running from the boogeyman that no longer existed, the boogeyman of poverty, of pain and suffering, how much I hadn't reconciled my mother's death on the day that I had become press secretary, she dies that morning. The feeling of failure that I realized so many of my decisions were being driven by cortisol and fight or flight, my amygdala flashing like a grapefruit in my brain. I realized it was distorting my decision-making and making me actually a bad leader. I was hobbled. And so that was making me not self-aware because I was telling the world, I'm fine. I got through it. I'm healed. And I wasn't healed. I was broken. And so I know I'm going very psychological because the reality is a lot of success and failure of being a founder hinges on the quality of your thinking and mm -hmm. the integrity of how you're constructed. And so if you're under-indexing for self-awareness because you want to be tough and you want to whatever, I'm telling you, if you focus on why is it that I'm so afraid to look within, if you can change that one thing, you will be infinitely more successful. I could do this for an hour. So those are the, those are the ones that I, that I want to, hopefully somebody out there who's dealt with something and was like, oh, damn it, he's right. <laughs> we'll say I need to face it. And lastly, yeah. to all the female entrepreneurs out there, you're amazing. My book is populated with many examples, not in a preachy way. It's just my experience, so many incredible female founders. So when you read Burn the Boats, you'll see that it's not an accident that it starts with a female founder, ends with a female founder, because I just think that for too long, it's been too hard to break through. And yeah. rather than preach and lecture, because I don't do that, I commiserate, I want to take my book as an opportunity to showcase great stories. So if you're a female founder out there and you're trying to make it and you're dealing with confidence or barriers, whatever it is, one, when you read the book, you'll see yourself in there, but two, DM me because I love yeah. to hear from anybody out there who has had to burn the boats, didn't know how, read the book and is going for it. I am working on something so amazing right now that is a reader of mine who read the book, 
and was pursuing a career in investment banking, didn't have the confidence to go for it, sends me a DM said, hey, Matt, I just want you to know that I read your book and I quit my job today. And I was like, oh, wait. (laughs) Three months later, she sends me the business plan and I had a holy shit reaction. Like, this is going to work. She recruited two female co-founders. I'm going to tell the full story soon in a couple of months, but it's amazing. And I think, wow, had she never burned the boats, she would have had an entirely different life. So my last word to anybody out there is really, if you suspect that you have more to give this universe, you're probably right. The chances that you're being delusional are very minimal. And if you have an opportunity, you do read the book, book, send me a DM because I want to know now what you're doing, how this changed your life and, and what direction you're going to. And I'll, I'll give you a, a word of encouragement. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, we'll link up Matt's profile so that everybody who wants to just send him that DM can DM. And of course, you can just find Matt Higgins and uh, Burn the Boats and you'll find him. Thank you so much. This has been such an inspiration and I hope to get you back on the show again soon. Thank you. Happy to come back. Thanks again for doing the show and for letting everybody tell their stories. And that's it. That was awesome. And thank you folks for listening in. If you enjoyed the chat, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast right here. And of course, do hop on to Mason at www.getmason.io. That's www.getmason.io. We got more Ace in the Hole insights, conversion tips, and just everything that you need to scale your e-commerce brand. Catch you next time. Thank you.